0: Whoa!
1: Hi, my name is uh, Jason Lujan. I've lived in Brooklyn, New York City, since uh, the fall of 2001. I'm originally from a tiny West Texas town called Marfa. It's a place known for having um, indigenous Apache and Mexican inhabitants mostly, and now it's become a pilgrimage site for minimalism, which is unusual for me. Uh, I'm a visual artist. I originally studied computers in school and then as part of my degree plan I had to take a liberal arts course and I took a drawing course. And from that moment on I I decided I wanted to switch over and go down this path which has been uh, tumultuous I think. Uh, any artist could probably uh, attest to that. Um, I'm enrolled at Chiricahua and it's always unusual to have to do an affiliation because we don't call ourselves Apache or Chiricahua we call ourselves something different but I have to use the the common vernacular so I always feel like I'm talking about someone else or I'm introducing someone every time I do that it's it's odd Um, and more and more as time has gone by and as and as I'm identified as a native artist in other places I tend to refer to myself as American, and sometimes I'll get called, you know, what What do you want next to your name? You know, next to your birthday or whatever. And I go just say use American. That's I consider myself an American artist uh, first and foremost. Um, the kind of work that I do, uh, it's it's kind of hard to get started on that because it seems like a really long path to such a short answer at the end. But really, um, <clears throat> it has to do with oftentimes i think people will talk about what their work does they will instrumentalize it in some way usually connected to identity but i my work when i think about what i do it tends to involve my surroundings and where i live and what my interests are and i tie all that together and that's the exploration and so, so therefore it involves a lot of visual components and content components that are not tied to indigeneity and as i said earlier since i'm identified as an indigenous artist people often go looking for an indigenous cultural experience. And what they end up with is an experience that's more along the lines of a global fabric situation. And they're like, well, this doesn't really tell me anything about Indians, but I think it does. Um, I have a statement where I, I state that half the native population is, lives in urban environments right now. And so the, to preference the, the rural or reservation as being, an authentic, you know, as being more authentic than than the urban seems just, I, I don't know, it might be, I think I might be a little cynical in, in talking about that because uh, I definitely see, see a preference for that. And it could just be the marketing apparatus or um, vested interests or gatekeepers at play doing that. Um, but I think more and more, as you look around, you'll see Indians in cities making work about living in these environments and living in cities uh, and not referencing a different kind of romanticized notion.
2: That's interesting. So you identify as a Native artist or an uh, well, an Indigenous both. artist?
1: I, I do. Um,
2: because that seems like an interesting conversation that a lot of Native artists go through is like you have this part of you and how much of it goes into the work, and how much of it do you use to go into the work field, to go into the art field when you approach projects and when you approach museums, et cetera? And where do you find that balance?
1: Well, um, I can only speak from my own personal experience, and that is that I I tend to reread, I feel like I reread the same artist statements from contemporary Indigenous artists often. And the phrase I see a lot is, is exploring, my background or my history or my identity. And I I have a distaste for that particular narrative. Um, because it, it implies that it's rarefied and that everything else is, you know, there's a rejection of everything outside of that. And I don't believe in that. Uh, my work, I feel is not about identity, mostly because I don't need to explore it. I, I know I'm comfortable with who I am, and where I come from. So There's nothing to really explore. So now, What's the next step? Well, the the next step is then to place myself out there and see where I fit in everywhere else or how everything else fits in with me uh, and my ideas and interests and my politics and my experiences. And so that's what the work generally works, works with. It can be confusing because I've run into occasionally you'll I'll meet another contemporary artist or a native artist. You know, it's a small community and we run into each other all the time and thematic shows and those kinds of things. Um, I think any indigenous artist has a really good experience. And I'm sure you've heard so many stories of that whole um, collectivization of artists where everyone kind of starts off at the same starting point with, you know, identity, instrumentalizing their artwork to Push an agenda of some type, or at least to get a footing out there, because it's a really big world, and it's a really big art world. And then, after a while, you realize that there are the limitations come hard and fast, and you'll find that if you stay, if you don't evolve past this, you might end up plateauing. And then that kind of leads to several different things. You can either make a decision to really break away, or you can make a decision to entrench yourself even more. Um, And I've been doing this for over 10 years, and so I've seen lots of people come and go. And, you know, they they change things up. They'll put something out there. It doesn't seem to work. They'll push it out there again. Um, And I don't really know how happy they are doing this kind of thing. And a long time ago, I decided that uh, I was just going to do what I want. And everyone else can kind of come with me if they want to come with me. And it seems that out here, people do. Uh, One of the things that I see a lot, if you study the world, you know, world history and and that kind of things where you're, which we can do more and more, I think we are more connected to the world than we've ever been in, in the history of mankind, is that you hear about vanishing languages, and you especially hear about vanishing indigenous languages. But visual art is a language too. And when an artist passes on, that language probably goes with them. And so there's a key to understanding that, and we all know that language is a very... Um, language is the closest connection to a culture, and the key to understanding any culture is, of course, to understand its language because it contains a very specific body of knowledge as well as a worldview. Visual art does that too. And so my worldview and my specific body of knowledge is living in, in New York and going to other places and checking that out. And that's what they, I make my work about. It's no less, more or less, I think a language than the language we speak at home or the language we speak elsewhere where we have to communicate with other people
2: Native art deserve to sit in a global um, or international conversation? And where do you think it is currently in that
1: conversation? I don't know. That's a really tough question because Indigenous art is such a... I think we do it a disservice by grouping it all together. I think one of our strengths as Indigenous peoples is our, our, our differences. It's our differences that are our strength. I think by labeling something as Indigenous art and collectivizing it as such. We do ourselves a disservice because our biggest strength as indigenous peoples are our differences. Uh, And there's different ways a person can, can operate in this. I prefer to operate as an individual agent. I don't speak for anyone else. I don't speak for my community necessarily. I don't speak unless I'm given permission to. I don't speak for Indians at large. That's normally a red flag that someone doesn't know who they are. When you hear them or you see them talking, Indians do this. Indians think this way. That often tells me that they don't know who they are. Because if you know yourself, you don't speak for anyone else but yourself. But I digress. So I think... Our differences are important and that's the best way to probably combat the kind of creative constraint or restrictions that anyone who's an indigenous artist tends to run up against where you create something and, um, you know, my experience has been that non-natives will go out of their way to tell the native artist what is Indian and what isn't, Hmm. which is incredible to me. I can't think of anyone else who does that. And there's this constant defining that's happening. And my goal is not to define. Because when you define, that means you, you narrow things down. Things become specious. My goal is to open things up. I see myself in the world. I'm a citizen of the world, or at least I'd like to think I am. I'm interested in everything outside of me. And and that's where I draw all my, my resources and content from. And then, and only then, once it's filtered through me, and often through a computer, um, then it, then I can put it all together and process it. Um, It doesn't start from just my ideas and and things don't start from uh, an inspiration does not come from just inside of me first and foremost. I'm not sitting there trying to think of how I can make art or how I can be an artist or how I can define something. Um, I prefer to just to kind of put it all together and see how it works. And sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it does. One of the big secrets with artists is that we create a lot of waste. Um, You know, for every one good thing that you see, uh, there's like how much stuff that just didn't make it through. And time and again, I'll be sitting having coffee with another artist and they'll be talking about someone's coming by to photograph or write about them. And they have to expend a lot of effort to try to make things look easy. How do I make this look easy? I just need to, you know, they want to be magicians where they just pull up a... A satin cloth, and then there's a masterpiece underneath. And oh, I just kind of <laughs> did this up in my spare time, you know, no big deal. I do this all, you know. But they actually, we all work really hard at this. We, <laughs> artists work really hard at making things look effortless. I think, um, and sometimes it is effortless, though.
2: I like the I like the way you talk about artists as uh, magicians. You know, because it it is. It's creating a space out of out of nothing, almost. You know, and can you talk about? how it makes you feel in in stepping into the process of creating something what what you do what kind of motions do you go through as far as like forming concept versus like materials
1: okay sure so there's a couple of there's a couple of places to start and i think the one thing is that i spend a lot of time in transit here and i don't spend it driving i ride i ride a bus I walk i um subway mostly so that gives me a lot of time to think about stuff and process things slowly. And sometimes it doesn't happen right away. I will sometimes think of an idea several times over several days over the length of like maybe a year. I'll have something that may seem like a good idea and I'll think about it and think about it and think about it. I'll discard it and it'll come back. So so time is, is really important. And time is, I think, just as important an ingredient to being an artist as common supplies are. The other thing is that I'm constantly surrounded by visual cues and signifiers in terms of advertising, graphics, and those kinds of things. And this can kind of inform my aesthetic, uh, much in the same way that living in a certain environment is, we are all products of our environment. You don't need me to say this. Um, But the artificial environment that's built up around me is in complete contrast to how I grew up in a very natural, dry desert environment. And so those things are always at play. But that being said, there's a certain mix of materials that is constantly around me. When you're in Marfa it was dirt, tree, sky, grass, very simple things, very natural things. Here, objects are brought in from all over the world. Things that I am completely unfamiliar with and, and might want to understand, but also just common objects, things like tarps, cardboard, product packaging. They're always in view all the time. They become just as much of the landscape as a building
0: hmm. or flags
1: or something like that. Um, So a lot of it is putting these pieces together as well. Well, how can I use this? You know, that's the question you ask. Well, how do you, what goes through your mind and how do you reach a certain point where you're feeling successful in in an idea? And a lot of it comes with just looking at that and trying to figure out what purpose it serves for me. What is this to me other than just something in my way? Uh, I use common objects and product packaging a lot, and the reason and it took me a while to reach this idea. Product packaging is important to me is because it really is a good representative of global commerce. But one of the things about product packaging is that it's not the product, it's the packaging. Its value is used up at the end of the journey once the contents are removed. And then you're stuck with this empty vessel. So I like to use it and I will I try to add value to it by usually doing artwork on it. Um, there are other artists who use products of shipping and and product packaging as well. And they tend to add value in different ways, sometimes with literal money. But I add cultural value to it by adding my own ideas to it and using it as a form. Um, And therefore, I I reinvigorate and I reinject something that is normally just used and discarded and and repurpose it and recycle it back again. That's not all of my work. That's not what my work is necessarily always about. But it's an important component to... to To recognize that, and I think it gives people a good understanding that it's it's using that material is probably one of the easiest ways I can talk about how my work connects to the rest of the world as opposed to just being about me in a in a small you know parochial setting, um, and using other things that tie into that kind of globalization.
2: And what about the actual content in your work? I've done some research on your work, and I've noticed a lot of like eastern influence in your work and i was actually wondering if you were like descended from a part of asia just because of the influence (laughs) and i'm i'm curious about where where that thread comes from
1: Mm, i get that a lot and it's really funny and i think it speaks to the limitation the limitations of how the west sees artists and what we are qualified to speak for or speak from the default is that if you're using any kind of non-western influence you have to be genetically related to it because those are the only conditions with which one can possibly use this stuff right um no there's no asian in me i'm completely i'm from texas there's no way (laughs) around it Um, but i do get asked that a lot and also i have my eyes and you know i have a certain appearance that i think sometimes people want to read into Um, i've been to asia several times i speak japanese fairly well i'm out of practice more and more um because before I began using it, and I just beca- it just became an interest through just mass media and communications. I saw interesting things and ideas. And early on, before I became an artist, uh, like an artist artist, a fine artist who went to a university to study art, my goal was to be one of those guys who works in museums making little dioramas and scale models. Before I studied art in school, I was a professional model maker, and it I kind of followed along with what you might phrase, geek hobbies, right. You know, comic books. Um, I was a comic book artist. I could do that, or uh, or be a be a diorama or model maker or um, anything tied into what nowadays are known as you know popular Japanese hobbies. I think Um, anime, all that stuff, Star Wars, blah blah blah. So anyway, so getting back to the Eastern culture things, it's just an interest of mine. I've studied other things, but it's hard. I think it was hard for me to work with. Everything else from Europe over, because of colonial contact, just seemed pretty well worn. Lots of people are doing that kind of thing. Lots of people are making connections. So I wanted to go in a different direction, and my interests kind of took me that way. Also, it's a really good signifier for internationalism, Asia. Uh, When you think of people think of Asia, it seems to Americans, it's very far away. It's very foreign. It's very different. The alphabet isn't even the same. You know, you can probably work your way through most of Western Europe, just phonetically pronouncing words. But when you're confronted with Chinese characters, it's a whole different ballgame. And so I liked that entire, the difference. I really enjoyed it. And then I was able to, once I learned Japanese and I started studying these things a little more and living in New York, there's Chinatown, there's different immigrant neighborhoods and environments that I'm always in and I'm looking around um i'm I'm a stranger in my own country in many aspects uh politically but also just as a person in immigrant communities. So the East speaks to me in that way because the immigrant experience is actually very big for people coming over from Asia to the United States and America and canada
2: and Can you talk about like uh maybe more long term immigrant experience like your theory on possible ancestral ties to Asia for indigenous peoples of North America or if you think that's bunk. I'm just interested. I I I think
1: we're I think we're far enough away from any of that where it's it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to anyone but anthropologists um where we came from. We have our own stories. My wife who's Canadian Ojibwe has her own stories. Um however, that said, one of the things I often get a lot, and I I'm just I'm baffled by where it comes from is People often ask, am I using Asian work to try to form an Asian connection? You know, the Bering Strait, is this what this is about? And it's not about that. Uh, you know, it, it's like it, it's demoralizing because once again, I feel like as a native, I'm forced to be ahistorical. I can't be speaking about conditions in the present or a reality in the present. It all has to tie back to someone else's idea of what Indians are. And their ideas seem trapped in amber in a weird kind of way where it has to be, you know, it, it's not about now it, it's always about then.
0: Mm.
1: So I did a performance where I, a cultural performance originally at the Herd Museum and then later at the Smithsonian where I had fancy dancer, you know, fancy dancers and fancy jingle dress dancers, fancy shawls performing with Chinese lion dancers. And it was mostly just about Uh, literal integration and hybridization. Let's get everyone together and see how everyone acts. These two communities that have never really had much contact with each other, especially in Arizona. I had to bring in the Chinese (laughs) guys from San Francisco, and they were great. It was such a wonderful experience, but everyone kept kind of asking me about the Bering Strait right after that performance. And I found myself without an answer because it was just one of those things that I never expected. And it was a very good learning experience because it told me that it's possible as an artist where you can be so close to your own work that you're completely unaware of all the other approaches that are available to other people. Because everyone brings their own cultural and identity baggage with them, especially people who don't know a whole lot about perhaps Chinese lion dancers or native powwow dancers. They're going to be reaching for anything to try to understand it. Um, And the Bering Strait Theory has been so well promoted as as uh, as a connection to the world for the america for indigenous americans that's our primary connection to the rest of the world is through a a land bridge that the theory is on then it's off then it's on again then it's off again you know yeah um, it will always remain a theory uh, whereas here i am i'm not a theory
2: talk about what you feel like um native art deserves like as far as blood versus culture and uh, integrating your culture into your work can you talk about your ideal of where it would sit or if it's even necessary to talk of
1: wow i think i think there's plenty of room for everybody to do whatever they want personally wherever people are at um in conversations with artists and other artists, particularly in the Southwest, often the conversations center around what we are allowed and not allowed to do. And it's and it's just my impression that a lot of artists in the Southwest would like to be doing different kinds of work than what they're allowed to do, than hmm. what the market, the public might expect from them. Um, I, I'm completely aware that I operate from a position of privilege living here, where there's an audience for anything and everything. There's always there's too much going on almost where you can feel it's a common story for an artist to move to New York from somewhere smaller or different and then immediately just lose it completely because there's just too many options, too many directions, too much choice. And what they came here with ends up going in every direction possible. And then in the end, they have nothing. Constant changes, constant directions about faces, et cetera, in in all forms, you know, in in visual forms, but also in ideas and and things like that. So my preference is these artists who originally said, you know, that must be great to be able to do whatever you want. I can't really do that here. In in an ideal world, I wish they could do that there. Um, And that they would be able to find an audience for it. And, And when I say an audience, I don't mean a virtual audience. I mean also just a real audience, a community of people who also share the same ideas. One of the things I've noticed in living here, and when I talk about positions of privilege, is that when I go to an art opening or I'll have a show or an art function, generally you will find a variety of people there who all have that shared interest in whatever's happening. But when I operate outside of New York or I go to other places, i um, and I'll give an artist talk or there's an opening. 99% of the people in that room are in the business. They're either administrators or curators or other artists. Um, there, No one's a dentist, you know, few people are secretaries, few people are models or, or in bands um, full time, you know, that kind of thing. So the variety of the audience that's able to be found here is what enables this kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. No one's playing the stock market. In arizona you know who's interested in art necessarily who wants to come out i don't like saying these kinds of things because it makes it sound like uh, this place is not a lot of hard work and being here is incredibly hard work it's really hard and i kind of feel like i'm painting a rosy picture but i don't want to do that I, i think we need to spend a little bit of time talking about the reality of being an artist here as opposed to somewhere else because With more options and more of an audience and more outreach opportunities and also name recognition comes competition. And time and again, I'll talk to another artist who lives in in another part of the country and there'll be a grant opening or uh, something like that, a a place for a show. It's like, we had over 200 applications and I have to laugh because it's like, well, try 2,000 applications every time, you know, try 20,000 applications, you versus 20,000 other people as well as the expense and everything else. Because there's so much going on, um, some places are able to capitalize on, they'll have like an art night or an art stroll night. That can't, that that would be impossible here. you know. So you have to time a lot of things very carefully in that regard too, and the what kind of work you make. Um, A lot of people come through here and they'll take ideas and they'll leave. And sometimes they'll take your ideas. Consequently, a lot of people come through with new ideas, and you can look at new ideas and you can take from those too. So it works both ways. But it's um, there, there used to be a time when I first moved here where I thought all artists were my friend. And then I started to realize, well, they're more like colleagues, and I have other friends too who, who are sometimes artists. But um, I also have many supporters who are not artists or not in the art business as well. So getting back to the original question of where would I like to see Indigenous art, I would like to see it all over the world. And I would like to see Indigenous artists making artwork about these times today. For me, um, well, in the contemporary art world, what identifies a work as contemporary art, the qualities, are largely, is largely irony. That's Mm. the one thing that's, right? And I, I dislike irony. I dislike irony and I dislike juxtaposition in an ironic way. (laughs) Um, So, but one of the other things, the way I identify contemporary art is I look at it, or I'll experience it, or I'll hear it, and I'll ask myself, does this feel like a record of its time? Does this speak to this moment? And I would like to see more Indigenous artists speaking to this moment, or, or making work that does not look like it could exist at any other point in time, but this one now and that's just my opinion
2: yeah do you feel like coming from a um academic background as your initiation into being artist it's formed these types of opinions for you that it's not that it's more measured it's not just like an abstract thing you're doing you're very conscious and aware of your place as artist in society in culture etc what what's your what's your feelings on that
1: i think i'd have to be i think anyone who's an artist has to has to have those qualities of focus and dedication because the the competition and rate of rejection and the challenges are so steep that if you didn't have that i don't know what you would do i guess you could compartmentalize it and ignore it but there's there's a lesson in everything and you know it's um i remember when i first started you a long time ago you would have to send out slides to a place for something and then later you'd get you get an envelope back and if it was your own handwriting on that envelope and you could feel your slides you knew exactly what it was <laughs> and you would take it very personally Oh, those clowns you know one day and now you can't and have now having worked in the art industry for a while and seeing how the sausage is made nothing is personal absolutely nothing um, it's just a matter of being at the right place at the right time and having a good amount of luck and, and when the option is – and when opportunity is there, being available to take it and to capitalize and build a good trajectory. So academic art. Um, there are a few regrets I have in life, and one of the regrets is getting an MFA. I wish I had never gotten an MFA personally. Really? Yeah, it's left me in debt, for starters. Like many, many artists who've gone to get an MFA, we're all now slaves to debt, um, mostly – I worked my way through school, also. And, um, and there is a certain kind of indoctrination, I think, uh, there's this good saying in art where with with paintings, I studied painting, where the original idea behind painting was seeing is believing, you know, representational painting, but now with every other kind of art that's out there, it's kind of turned it around where now it's believing is seeing or someone can convince you that this cardboard box is something other than a cardboard box and represents an idea. You have to drink that Kool-Aid and then it opens everything else up and you reach the level of plurality then where you begin to wonder, does anything actually have value? If everything is valuable as an idea or concept, you know, totally.
0: Um, That's, that's really, so
1: there's a lot of that. And then I have to, so, but then you spend time deciding what's right for you and it is even for you. Sometimes once again, language, um someone may be speaking a different language than what you're speaking or what you think you're hearing or understanding and then it just becomes a matter of understanding that and seeing you know and deciding for yourself i don't think there's anything wrong with saying you don't like something you like what you like and you don't like what you don't like and maybe one day you'll like it when i was younger people used to give me cassette tapes of bands cassette tapes um of bands and i'd listen to it i thought they were horrible and then like three years later i'd circle back around and it made sense so, you know, and music is art as well. So, art works that way. It comes back, and it, you know, it sends out waves, and who knows where those waves go, if they fall flat or if they don't. Um, but the MFA, I think, did irreparable damage <laughs> to how I would like to think, because I, I'm only now, now I've actually had to spend a lot of time and effort forgetting about that, that strict education, and learning how to embrace things and value them without necessarily having to have a reason. The other thing with getting an MFA is it, it origin- and I've seen this when I give uh, talks at art schools, is when you talk to a person and they're talking about their art, it's instrumentalized. Everything, their art has to do something. And, and I don't think art, not all art has to do something. It can just be. It's, as you had said earlier, it's something that's created out of nothing. And it can just exist on its own. Mm-hmm. To have whatever it is, whatever qualities we all bring to it, and so to have you know to, to narrow things down, um, I think does art at the service, and in go, it goes hand in hand with the kind of art too. Um, native art is very narrowly defined. Oftentimes, narrow the native art in a university is taught by an, anthropo- an anthropology department, not the contemporary art department, or even the art department, and it's carried on through, and you see it in museums, uh, the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. The Contemporary Art Department does not look at Indigenous art. They have a very special person who looks at Indigenous art, and they have a very particular person who looks at Black art, and a very particular person who looks at Asian art. But none of these people are necessarily connected to Contemporary Art Department. Klaus Biesenbach is not looking at Native contemporary artists, and he's the main curator who deals with contemporary art, Uh, usually the hottest kind of art that's in style and in fashion. Uh, and you see that reflected all through the administrative system.
2: And do you feel like um, going to a program, an MFA, kind of sets you up as an Indigenous artist to, like, understand there's a place? And do you think that it's um, it's teaching you how to play a game that might not necessarily be the most productive for you as an artist?
1: I do. I think... I think of uh, the academic, well, not all of them. I'm speaking about just my experience. My experience was actually very, very nice. And it's only in retrospect that I see the changes that could have happened or, or maybe a different way of approaching this. Um, it's, it's too bad that most people feel that the art industry or the contemporary art world is a game of competition, we're competing with each other. We're competing for resources. We're competing against each other for opportunities constantly. And I believe in building systems of support. And it's not very popular. It's not a very popular opinion. As soon as I mention this, people start ripping it apart. And it's like, well, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we can, we can, be, we can support each other. Um, the academic system in, in right now, with my experience, does not seem to be about building systems of support. I grew up in a, in an Indian household that was all about systems of support. We all helped each other all the time, whatever we needed. Uh, it comes naturally to me, and I'd actually kind of forgotten about that when I went to school. And out here now, I'm I'm involved in art organizations that are all about positive po- positive progress through cooperation and non-competition, which yeah. is hard to do in New York, but it's still here. It still <laughs> exists.
2: maybe talk about how you have dealt with making a living as an artist how you have dealt with finding a place to retain your integrity and individuality but also sustain your life and like make a living and um, play the game like where where do you fit in that balance
1: oh i wish i knew um (laughs) that is actually something that i wrestle with on a regular basis so i'm i am I have an art practice, I have an art career that has a trajectory as far as, as best I can plan it. But I also have nine to five. I have a day job that pays very well and allows me you know, to be an artist with a studio. New York City is a different economy than the, I think the rest of the United States for the most part. Maybe LA comes close. So having, having a full-time job that's in the art field, that is a very challenging full-time job. With other, I deal with other contemporary artists gives me the ability where i'm not dependent on creating something for a specific audience for example sales i'm not dependent on sales so therefore there's no i don't have to depend on anyone to art direct me um, or to respond to trends or regionalism or what have you i've had gallery experiences and they've never been very good mostly because of art directing you know this did really well make 10 more and the first few times you go along with it and then you realize you know i don't want to do this this is not why i became an artist i became an artist to be creative with and have ideas and then try to innovate and figure out these and realize these ideas. So the nine to five really helps. It allows me a lot of freedom. And because it's in an art context, it's not, I'm not working as a, I don't know, secretary for a lawyer or something. I'm able to think about art in different levels. Um, I'm working for a, a place with a, something like a $55 million programming budget for artists, which is massive. Um, And so then this is what I alluded to earlier when I said I've seen how the sausage is made, both on the street level as an artist, but also on a corporate level where I can see how decisions are made on what artists to support, um, corporate tie-ins, that kind of thing. And, you know, a person, a good idea doesn't always win out.
2: It's complicated the business end of art because how much we want to have this romantic idea of artists who can just like sit in their studio and be tragically creative. Yeah. The bottom line is that we have to survive, you know.
1: Yeah, I think so. But I think the the survival instinct um the to if you subscribe to the romantic notion of being the booch the um Bohemian artist. Mm-hmm. Right? Before the before the idea of the Bohemian artist, there was the artist's guild, where you went in and you worked for someone, you did what they wanted to do, and you were able just to work for them. And maybe later, you'd have your own creative outlet, but not really. And then the Bohemian came along, um, the trust fund kid who just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. But most of us are not, unless we're independently wealthy, we're never going to have that. We're going to always have to work for something. And then we're going to be subject to outside forces, if you want to make a living. Um, I think sometimes that can create the worst kind of desperation in artists, because then you're trying so hard, or an, uh, an artist is trying so hard just to be an artist, that inevitably the reasons for becoming an artist become lost. I find myself, when I talk to schools and art students, I often find myself talking using analogies of musicians or actors where everything, anything in this creative, there's so many artists. There's just like, there's so many bands or there's so many actors that it's very rare that someone has a wave and plateaus and then sticks around. Oftentimes, you know, you come, who's that guy? And you'll see this guy who was in the Sprite commercial. He was he's a movie star. That's the same with artists too. Nine to five kind of helps me escape that because then I, I can continue my trajectory at my own pace. Whereas if I was a kind of gallery artist and, or you're you're showing and you're based on sales only you have to make what's popular you have to take those you have to keep taking those typecast roles if you're an actor
0: Hmm. over
1: and over until you can't do anything else and then what do you do and then you know with actors they really hate being typecast but once you're stuck you're stuck and then their biggest complaint is I hate doing the thing that made me successful because I can't do anything else and there's but there's no longevity in doing what made me successful it's a whole um
2: I, I don't. I don't have an answer for that, though. You know, yeah. I mean,
1: you just kind of I think you ride the wave as long as you can and then either you jump and you cross your fingers or you don't and it's kind of, who knows? It's the luck of the draw, it's the roll of the dice, whether you surface again, whether you pull a John Travolta and you come back or you don't.
2: I think it also depends on caring, you know, what? who you care about, caring about you as being involved, you know what I mean? And also, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. If you just don't participate in the trends or like don't if you can find a way a loophole like the 9 to 5 what you're talking about to not participate in the trending of art, how do we how do we stop playing the game, you know? Like how do we create it on our own? And I I'm interested in that. Do you have anything to say about
1: that? I think I think the honest response and this is I don't know, would just be to stop making art. <laughs> if we all just kind of, if we all stopped making art for the art system that would be true power it's incomprehensible it's almost like trying to say we need to come up with another economic system that doesn't use money we can't do it we can't think i can't think of it one right now where we value something other than money we value time we value each other anything other than money it's the same with art if we can develop something a way to make ourselves happy and do what we'd like to do in a creative aspect, but without creating art, that would give us true power. a lot of artists I run into here I mean it's it's every you throw a rock you'll hit an artist somewhere and there's there's different reasons for making art um one of the things is that well okay I'll just tell you about certain certain characters i run into over the years there's the artist who is extremely bitter and angry because they've come out to New York to be an artist and they have felt they have done everything humanly possible to make it And it still didn't, you can do everything right and it still won't, you still won't be a full time artist. But now they're, they're, they've been squeezed like a tube of toothpaste and nothing's happened and they're extremely upset. I use this person as an example when I'm asked, well, you know, you have, you have a family, you have other priorities in life other than art. Don't you feel that's a contradiction to being an artist? No, because by setting up boundaries and limitations for myself for the things that I feel are important first, I will never be bitter. Right. Mm. The second kind of artist that I run into a lot are the people. So you ask most people, let me ask you this as an artist, what do you primarily want out of being an artist? What's your goal?
2: You asking, I'm asking you. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, my goal is to um, basically be a connector, be the Excuse conduit me. that you were talking about is needed That's Mm -hmm. my art. I'm so inspired by being a connector.
1: So you work to keep your family stable, financially stable and at home, right? Yes. And that's what most artists want. That's what they want out of their life. There are people who are independently wealthy who get into art, and they already have all that. They're making art for completely different reasons then. They're not even playing the same game as many other people are who want to be artists. And so those kinds of things you need to keep in mind. The many different reasons. We can't always assume that people are in art for the same reasons as us. That's why I'm I'm a big proponent of just stop making art and just do what you want to do. It could be the same thing. You don't have to stop doing what you're currently doing. Just don't call it art. Don't make it, you know. Um,
2: Wow, that's interesting.
1: So keep that in mind. Well, The thing about New York is that you constantly are confronted by people of different economic levels. And not just on a minor level. I know Santa Fe has that too. But this doesn't come close to the economic levels that you're confronted with constantly here, below you or above you. And a lot of these are are people who they dabble in the arts. They don't really know what to do. They're going to become artists, but because of their financial backing, resources, and time, they don't have to do anything else. They can just do it. (laughs) They can just be artists, you know. The stories I've heard of people who worked really hard to get into a gallery situation only to have some movie star's kids show up and go like, oh, I think I want to have an artist in this space, and then they're booted, are innumerable. And that's what artists, you know, that's the the art system. It sounds depressing, and I don't want to get depressing, but the challenges are there. Um, So one of the challenges, as I alluded earlier to some of the challenges about living in New York, is that the real estate for artists is constantly under contention. And it's under contention by by other artists who don't necessarily have the same goals as you or your community of artists may have. A lot of it is for self-promotion, et cetera, et cetera. And things, mm. that, things that I don't necessarily agree with or align myself with those parties. And I see those as, as, as real challenges for arts, mm. uh, for the kind of humanitarian arts that I would like to see or the kinds of goals that I feel art should fulfill. You know, uh, we all have choices that we can make. Um, and Part of my statement is, is I feel, you know, there's a social activism aspect to being an artist. And that's the reason I became involved in art when I could have gone and stayed in computers or chosen any other kind of art to make. I could have gone into set design or maybe those models in museums. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel the social activist component is very important. And that's how I'm going to use my art. I am use it to make cultural statements um, about our place in the world. And I would hope other artists would look at that and go, Oh, okay. Well, oh, why is this native guy using Chinese newspapers? And then it just gives a different approach to indigeneity. Well, I never thought of this. We, I always thought natives, you know, lived a certain way, were only involved with a certain particular cultural aspect, dances, or you know, a, a circle, a closed circle. And I just want to make that circle much, much wider.
2: If there was one thing that you wished. Somebody would have told you as a young person in order to prepare you for a life as an artist. What would that have been? And what could you pass on to other artists out there listening to prepare them on their journey with?
1: Oh, there's just so much. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Um, And so much of it is the problem with advice. It's just it's so specific to the giver. You know, oftentimes there's this really good line I I think I heard on the subway. Someone was – I overheard someone talking. It's just like, if you want to know something about someone, ask them for advice and they'll tell you about themselves. Really. Um, (laughs) Right? Something like that. Um,
2: That's awesome. So we just did a whole interview (laughs) on
1: advice. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, ask them for advice and then they'll end up telling you something about themselves. I think – I think it's just that I said, I think we started off in the beginning with, with my advice, which is there's plenty of room for anyone to do whatever they want, period, you know, and then don't let anyone tell you what, what is and what isn't, what was and what wasn't. Um, there's only, there's only now, here and now,
0: hmm.
1: and you're not, you're not going to get any back in, if you, if you find yourself going down a dead end through a strategy I think we all know it. We, we all can spot a dead end from a mile away. And we all continue down that path because we feel we need to, you know, see it through. You're just wasting your time, you know. So I'm married to a Canadian. And one of the things that she identifies with me as being very, quote-unquote, American is that I ask for things. And it seems just a very easy thing. Just ask, hey, can I have this? Will you get, you know. And some, usually you'll get it. Maybe it's just... People in polite society probably don't ask. But I think as an artist, as an advice, ask. Ask for more. Mm -hmm. Just ask. And, yeah, you never know. I wish I had learned that sooner. I learned that very late.
2: To ask. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's it's a matter
1: of how you ask, too, but, yeah.
2: Yeah, people aren't mind readers. Yeah, it's important to say what you want. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, that's it. You're right. People aren't mind readers.
2: We think everybody gets us, but... (laughs) We're complex beings. (laughs) (laughs) The the last thing I like to have everybody go through is kind of an open-ended format question. This is your soapbox moment. If you had one thing to say to the world, what would it be?
1: Oh, okay. I feel like this entire interview is my soapbox moment (laughs) um, in a weird kind of way. It was actually very interesting and and thank you for it. Oftentimes, you get asked about your art specifically. What is this work? You did this work. What were you? And it's, this was just all about everything all around me, which I loved. So, okay, my soapbox moment is not a very unique moment, um, and it's sometimes I'll give it when I give an artist talk, but I'll, I'll do it here as best I can. So, without the visual, um, one of the first jobs I had when I was in school was working at a comic book store, and you know, working, and that's a very high bar to beat once uh, for jobs following after. Because it's like being on a pirate ship, working in a comic book store, uh, and we would go through the covers and look at things and just kind of dissect the art. And one of these, um, one of the covers we got, came across was a Conan. There's like, there were there were something like 14 different titles of Conan comic. You can get a lot of mileage out of a guy with a sword. But the cover, we were looking at the cover, and my friend and I, Sam, were looking at it, and we were just like, it was looked terrible to us. And I'll describe it as best I can. It was just this Conan with his sword, and he had this serpent creature wrapped around him that was going to choke him. And he was, But he was about to cut into the, the serpent, too. But this wasn't just a serpent. It had, like, fur and fangs and big red eyes. But our problem with just was how the foreshortening on Conan was bad. It just, we, we, we were just asking ourselves, how did this get into publication? So then our manager comes over and you have to visualize a kind of like our manager, this kind of early Jack Black kind of guy. You just kind of want, he sees us doing it and he just kind of wanders over. What are you, what are you knuckleheads doing? And we're like, look at the snake. This is a terrible snake. You know, all our, all our um, indignity, right? Being, being boys, young boys. And he's like, oh, well, I see your problem. This isn't a snake. Snakes don't look like this, snakes don't have fur, snakes don't have rows of teeth, snakes don't have red eyes, snakes don't grow this big. You're judging this against your very limited tiny brain experience of what it's supposed to be. That story cycles through my brain when I think about indigenous art, contemporary indigenous art. (laughs)